Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update, understanding the real value of a financial advisor's business with Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, feel free to share it widely. You know the old saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Well, that's largely the subject of today's industry update, exploring the different ways for a financial advisor to monetize his or her life's work upon retirement. So I asked Diamond Consultants resident expert on M&A, Lewis Diamond, to join me. Welcome, Lewis. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Lewis contributed to a piece I wrote that was recently published in Forbes entitled, What's the Real Value of a Financial Advisor's Business? And it is the basis for our conversation today. You'll find a link to the article on this episode's page on our website. Let me begin with some background. Advisors who are employees of brokerage firms, particularly the wirehouses, face a big decision as they think about how they want to retire from the business they've built. Is their current firm the right place from which to leave their legacy? Is it right for their clients, their team, and their next-gen inheritors? Is it possible that there's a better opportunity for all stakeholders? And is making a move relatively late in the game worth the hassle? The good news for these folks is that most wealth management firms have put in place sunset or retire-in-place programs that allow these advisors to monetize their business without having to change jerseys, creating an opportunity not only for the senior advisor, but also his or her successor to take on a significant book of assets. But there's a hitch. The arrangement is not always in the best interest of clients or the next-gen team members because it binds all parties to the firm for the life of the agreement, usually five to seven years. And during that time, all parties have no control over how things change. This essentially takes optionality away from the team to decide freely if their firm is the best place to continue to grow their business or if they'd prefer to go elsewhere. Plus, these agreements ask the successors to buy a business with their own money, a business that they won't actually own at the end of the day. The message is this. All parties need to be very sure that they are in the right place and they understand all of the consequences before they sign a binding agreement. We've talked much about this topic in other episodes, so I won't belabor the point here. But what we do want to shed light on in this conversation is the seminal question, can a business's value be maximized under a brokerage umbrella? Two things are driving that question. One, Advisors are reading about mega M&A deals being done in the RIA space. To name a few, 
Focus Financial Partners, the largest investor in the independent space, went public in 2018 with a $2 billion valuation. United Capital Partners, a $25 billion RIA, sold to Goldman Sachs last year for a whopping $750 million. And in June of this year, CapTrust, a $47 billion AUM wealth management and 401k consulting firm, took on a 25% minority investment from private equity firm GTCR at a $1.25 billion valuation. I think we'd all agree those are some eye-popping numbers. Was there something extra special about these three sellers that garnered them some such sensational deals? Or are deals like that waiting at the ready for most any independent firm? Well, to be sure, Focus United Capital and Cap Trust built extraordinary franchises, each hitting on all the right data points and capturing the attention of the most well-capitalized and bullish buyers. And certainly, there are plenty of firms out there that have identified the right combination of exceptional client service, smart recruiting, and strategic growth initiatives, making them attractive acquisition targets. But if you think the deals I mentioned were just too good to be true, what of ex-wirehouse teams that have built their own independent franchises and then sold to either PE shops, multifamily offices, or banks for whopping sums, such as Paul Pagnotto, an ex-Merrill advisor who sold his RIA, Pagnotto Carp, a $2.3 billion firm he built with David Carp to the $9.5 billion multifamily office, Crescent Wealth Management, for an expected mega valuation in June of this year. Or take Mark Sear and David Ho, also ex-Merrill advisors. They grew their California-based RIA firm, Luminous Capital, from a billion seven to $5.5 billion in assets in just three years, and then sold it to First Republic Bank in 2012 for $125 million in cash. And then, not to mention the fact that the two of them left First Republic in 2019, giving themselves the opportunity to build another behemoth firm and sell it again. But the second thing driving all of this is a change in advisor mindset as advisors begin to look at their business as a business and more than casually wonder what it could be worth on the open market. Could the firm they built be the industry's next mega M&A deal? Well, let's look more closely at this second point. If advisors want to know how to maximize their business's value, then they're naturally asking these questions. One, how can it make sense to go independent where there's no upfront money and there are 300% plus deals to be had via a recruiting scenario. Two, how can an advisor rationalize giving up the bird in the hand via a retirement place program with a preset multiple and without the hassles of going through a transition? Three, how can an advisor build a business for maximum enterprise value? And four, how does one arrive at the valuation of an independent firm? Okay. Lewis, I'd love to ask you to help us unpack the answers to these questions. Let's start with why wirehouse advisors choose to go independent, especially when they're on the back nine of their careers. Yeah, it's a great question. And I honestly don't believe that age necessarily is a predictor anymore of whether or not 
an advisor is going to go independent or that they should. Uh, more often than not, if an advisor says that they are just too old to want to move or they're too close to the end of their career or it's just easier to take a retirement deal, it's typically because they're probably just not that unhappy where they are, which is completely fine. And honestly, the path of least resistance is typically the way to go in that case. But we've seen plenty of examples of advisors in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s recently decide to make the leap to independence. The reasons they consider going independent are for a couple of reasons. Most of them aren't very different than a 40-year-old going independent, but maybe the timeline or the urgency behind some of them is a little bit different. I'll break it down into five quick reasons. Number one, they have a really strong desire to create a legacy. They want to build a business that either bears their name or bears their, their DNA and their, their fingerprint that can outlast their career and can be passed on to generations. And those generations could be children, it could be friends that are in the business, or it could just be their team that they're loyal to. The second reason is they now have the flexibility to retire when and how they wish. The Wirehouse Retire in Place programs are a prescribed, preset way to retire. And for some, it works that you're going to go into this program. Here's the deal you're going to get. You'll go into it. You'll work five years. You can stay on as a consultant after, and then you're out. It works for many, but a lot of our clients decide that maybe they want to scale back a little bit. They want to keep some equity or hold on to working with some clients, but they don't really want to retire. It's very difficult to do that under the wirehouse scenario, but if it's their own business, they have complete optionality with the timing of when to retire. Maybe it's five years, seven years, 10 years, or 15 years away. It, they also have flexibility with how they want to work. So maybe they become the chairman or the non-executive chairman, or maybe they're just a relationship manager or they're a consultant. It's completely up to them. And that's really appealing to many who oftentimes say, I don't really know what five years from now is going to look like. What if I ultimately decide that I'm just having too much fun, or maybe I tried out retirement for a little bit and there's only so much golf I can play. So let's come back to the business and just do what I want to do. The third reason we might see an advisor go independent in this scenario is that they're intensely loyal to their clients and to their team. And with the pace of change going on at all of the major firms, not an indictment on anyone in particular, a lot of advisors are questioning whether the bank's control over the business different product sales, um, and just the overall environment is the best possible place to serve their clients, especially after they retire. They're locking their team into that firm for a minimum of five years. So oftentimes, too, it's a sense of loyalty to the team and wanting the team to have complete flexibility with how they want to serve the clients and grow the business. Fourth, real quick, is many just want to have fun again. They want to become re-energized and being business owners. They see that a lot of their friends have gone independent in the past, and they're just having a great time. They have much more of a work-life balance. Um, they work when they want to, and ultimately, they have the drive to work as hard as they want because they're creating something for themselves and for their families. And then lastly, of course, the economics are important, and I think we'll touch on this a little bit later, but the ability to sell equity to either the next generation of a team or to an external buyer at long-term capital gains tax treatment versus ordinary income tax is incredibly powerful, not to mention the chance to create a real market for the business. Instead of only being able to sell to someone within a branch or someone within your team at the set multiple that your firm says, you can now, if you want to, sell to a whole multitude of buyers, whether it's 
a bank, it's a private equity firm, it's a family office, it's your friend next door, it's your team. And that's really what drives the price. So those, I would say, are probably the five reasons why, even if an advisor is a little bit older, they may consider to go independent. Yeah. But let me ask you a question. You and I have talked about this a lot over the years, and it's the role that inorganic growth can play, not just in changing the economics, but the sort of as a motivator for going independent. And what I mean by inorganic growth is the desire to recruit and other advisors to the business or to engage in M&A. So how often from your perspective does the notion of wanting to become an acquirer drive an advisor to independence? So it, it is oftentimes, I would say, one of the most appealing carrots of going independent. Not every advisor that goes independent has the dream or the motivation to become an acquirer or to recruit advisors. I think anyone who does, they realize the opportunity. For some, it's a light bulb moment, though, where they realize that, sure, they can sign on to various retire-in-place deals to be the successor within the confines of a wirehouse, but they're really just using their own money and their own sweat and equity to buy a business for a firm. So the ability for these advisors to now go out and have a much more open playing field with who they might be able to acquire or recruit, there's no geographic bounds. It can be someone not in their branch office. It can be someone on a different custodian platform. It can be an existing RIA. It can be their friend from, from another competing firm. So the shackles are off as far as who the potential acquirees can be, which is really appealing. I would still say, though, that even advisors that are really motivated by the desire to recruit and acquire, it's still not an absolute given that they should go independent because there's a lot more that goes into becoming a business owner. And it is very difficult, as you know, to be able to successfully complete acquisitions. It's definitely a competitive environment, and there's a lot of interest in succession-oriented deals especially. So I would say it's definitely on the radar for most teams. Many, it's the number one driving force. Um, but even if it is a real motivator, it can't be the only thing that's driving someone to independence because there's too many other factors at play. Yeah, I, well said. I agree with that totally. Okay. In the Forbes article we wrote, we gave an example of a $5 million team managing, say, $600 million in assets that went independent. And the goal of the article was to sort of show or demonstrate how different scenarios impacted the economics. Can you walk us through those scenarios? First of all, tee up the example and then walk us through what the scenarios were and how they changed things. Absolutely. What we did was we looked at three different growth scenarios for this phantom $5 million production team that launches their own independent business. The first scenario assumes zero growth over a five-year period. The second scenario shows organic growth of about 10% of a compound annual growth rate for five years. And the third one brings in a mix of organic growth at the 10% compound annual growth rate and also an acquisition of a $2 million book of business in year five. All three of them are relatively realistic scenarios. Obviously, the no growth one is not something advisors hope for, but certainly to be conservative and plan for the worst is not a bad idea. So let me take, through, uh, take us through this very quickly. In scenario one, again, it's no growth over five years. We're assuming that the annual revenue uh, at the end of year five is still $5 million. We're going to say that a business of this size has expenses of about 30% of their revenue. The expenses will cover things like staff salaries and rent and benefits. 
And then we'll say the advisors are taking home about one and a half million of compensation. So the free cash flow at the end of the day is $2 million. So that's $2 million that either the owners of the business can distribute to themselves as income, or in the case of a monetization event, which is what we're talking about, that's the cash flow that's available to sell to a buyer. On a $2 million EBITDA business of this scale, we're going to assume a seven and a half times multiple on that $2 million. That's a roughly a $15 million valuation. Multiples in the independent channel, they do scale up and down based upon things like, like size of the business, assets, percent advisory versus commissions, what's the growth rate, what's the makeup of clients. But we'll just assume just, just kind of average based upon transactions we've seen, a seven and a half X multiple. So you'll see here, even without any sort of growth, this advisor who was generating $5 million at their wirehouse is now a $5 million revenue business as an independent and really got a 3x multiple on revenue. So $15 million valuation. This is largely at long-term capital gains. And this advisor had the ability to sell the business to whoever he wanted to. So still, I think a net result is significantly better than a wirehouse retire in place program. And Lewis, let's say that that same team, $5 million on $600 million, went independent and a year later wanted to sell the business. Would it still garner the same multiple or is there something magical about the five-year time frame? Absolutely. We use five years because oftentimes if an advisor is considering going independent, they probably want some sort of a runway in order to recognize the benefits of independence. So the possibilities for growth, the additional freedoms, be able to make a higher payout while they're independent. So we use five years. It's probably just a, a ballpark. But really, as long as the sale happened after the first year, the advisor's independent so that it's been over a year for long-term capital gains purposes, there shouldn't be a problem. There is, though, the belief, too, to a buyer that if someone just transitioned and now they're going to transition again, there might be some concern about how clients will respond to yet another change. I would expect the valuation to be the same if it was sold in a year, but potentially the structure, how much cash down at closing versus how much is in an earnout, that may look a little bit different. But overall, it should look pretty consistent. That point about deal structure, is there some formula for it or is it just dependent upon who the buyer is and what the seller wants? I think that's exactly right. There's not a preset structure. Um, it really does depend upon who the buyer is. For instance, if it's a private equity firm, they typically are able to come with the most amount of cash, both down at closing and overall. But many advisors are looking at M&A as a way not just to solve for their own succession plan, but also as a means to accelerate their growth and to be part of something bigger and better than themselves. So perhaps equity is part of the equation. It's really up to the seller or the person looking to merge their firm what they're looking to accomplish. And it's not just what they want to accomplish in terms of lifestyle or control over things like investment management or marketing. It's also about what is the deal structure going to say about what it is that their goals are are trying to lay out. So we've seen structures that are all cash. Some are cash and equity. Some are all equity. Some are cash plus some earnouts, meaning pretty similar to back-end bonuses where you have to earn, earn a portion of the valuation. Some are even a down payment And then there's a buyer-sponsored note payable where there's an equal amount of payment stream going out each year. And that sort of raises an interesting question. If we're talking specifically about somebody who's a senior advisor on the back nine of their career, what do you think is the requisite amount of time 
that an advisor needs to wait before the benefits of independence really kick in. And I guess what I mean by that is, so that advisor has the option of either staying put and retiring in their firm's retiring advisor program, going to another firm and being recruited with, let's say, a 300% plus recruiting deal, which again is not all upfront, but still a 3x deal, or going independent. But the real value of independence doesn't really get recognized or kick in day one. So how should someone think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's really case by case specific. I would say usually advisors want about five years or so of runway before they might look to retire. And that's not a magic number. It's more that it's just a nice period of time where they can reap the rewards of a higher payout. They'll have an opportunity to grow the business now that there's less restrictions and constraints on their time and also on what they can do for clients. And I think it's just the amount of time that I mean, the first year you're, you're transitioning, you're getting your feet wet, you're understanding what it means to be independent. So we, we have seen, though, plenty of advisors go independent with, say, a year or two left to work, and they're doing it more so for their team. It's oftentimes a bigger draw when it's a family team. So you have, let's say, a mother-son team. And the mother wants to retire in two years, but the son really, really wants to go independent. So the mother says, son, you're going to do most of the work. I'll be here just to kind of ride shotgun with you here to help. And I'm here to, to help assure clients that this is the right move, but they're really doing it for the next generation. So for them, the time doesn't really matter because they're working ultimately for their family anyway. And then the timing doesn't matter. Got it. And how about the second scenario? Yes. The second scenario is this $5 million business achieving a 10% compound annual growth rate for these same five years. So we're looking at, um, as the business grows, about an $8 million top line revenue figure. Um, Since the business has grown too, now the concept of operating leverage kicks in, which means that as new dollars of revenue come into the firm, they pretty much go to the bottom line as fixed costs can stay the same. This is in contrast to a wirehouse or any employee firm where the firm actually keeps the operating leverage because the advisor's grid rate doesn't necessarily change all that much based upon new revenue coming in. So here, again, $8 million of top line revenue. We're going to say that's about 25% of revenue for expenses because they're able to service this business more efficiently from a cost standpoint. And we'll say the same 30% of revenue to cover advisor compensation. And we're left with about a $3.6 million free cash flow figure. And here we'll put an eight multiple on it because as the business has grown and there's more scale, the purchase price or the multiple goes up. So now we're left with a valuation close to 29 million. So even just by growing by this 10% rate on a year over year basis, which honestly for RIAs and independents is somewhat conservative, they've almost doubled the business when they go to monetize it. So this is just a very clear indication or a narrative for why to answer one of your earlier questions, why might an advisor who, who can qualify for their firm's retire in place program or can go to a competing firm and get a 300% plus recruiting deal, would ever consider going independent? So it does take a bit of a leap of faith and obviously no one can control the future, but for those that are confident in their pipeline and how they can grow organically in their portability, this is a really clear, I think, conservative example of how this one advisor is able to double the value of their business, not to mention to monetize the business at capital gains treatment versus ordinary income tax. Okay. And then if we look at the third scenario, you know, I think it may answer the question, how can an advisor build a business for maximum enterprise value 
Because in this third example, as you said, you're adding inorganic growth. Yeah, exactly. So this is an important one because like we were talking about earlier, many advisors are drawn to the independent space because of the ability to recruit or acquire. And this example, I think, will show the power of what it means to acquire. It's not just to bring on human capital and to add new services, which is oftentimes the case, but financially is a game changer. So in this example, um, we're saying the business grew 10% on a compound annual rate for five years. So the same $8 million of top line revenue, like we saw in the previous example. Plus, let's say in the fifth year, this business acquired a $2 million book of business. It was their buddy from their old firm who wanted to retire, trusted this $5 million team, and now they're buying the business. Um, so now the combined revenue is a little bit over $10 million. Um, at a $10 million top line revenue figure, just to be conservative, we'll still say about 25% of revenue for expenses, 30% of revenue to cover advisor compensation. So we're left with about $4.5 million of distributable free cash flow that again can go to the owners of the business, probably the um, lead advisors, or is what's going to be monetized in a transaction. Since now the business is over 10 million and there's far fewer $10 million businesses to buy than there are five or $6 million businesses, there's more scarcity. So there's going to be more demand for a business of this size, not to mention once you get over this threshold, the options of who the buyers might be certainly change. You definitely garner the attention of private equity, and it's a whole new ballgame because now this is a real institutionalized business. So we're going to say, and I think this is somewhat conservative, that the $4.5 million worth of free cash flow will get a 9x multiple on it. So now we're at a valuation of a little bit over $40 million, close to $41 million. And that just shows the power of this acquisition, that you bring in a $2 million acquisition in the fifth year. And just because of that, you're leaping from about a $29 million valuation in scenario two, which is just the organic growth, and now almost a $41 million valuation just because of the acquisition. So this is a really clear example. I think if advisors had a crystal ball and they knew with certainty that they were going to grow a certain way and that they would do an acquisition, I don't think there'd be any advisors left at a wirehouse because these numbers are extremely compelling. And especially when you take into account what we said earlier about the flexibility of how and when to retire, long-term capital gains tax treatment, plus all the other benefits of independence, it is really difficult to imagine a scenario, even where someone goes to another wirehouse, let's say, they capture a 300% recruiting deal, and then they also qualify for that firm's retiring advisor program, say the move once, monetize twice, as we would call it. This is still a better economic deal because of the tax treatment, because of the flexibility, and even the sheer numbers are significantly better than what that math might, might add up to. Okay. So, I mean, it is incredibly compelling, but $5 million team managing $600 million is already in rarefied air. So how do things change in general terms if we make the example of a $2 million team, say, managing $300 million in assets? So it's, it's honestly a similar, it's a very similar valuation methodology as far as how you arrive at the cash flow figure the only thing that's really different is obviously the top line revenue figure you're starting with is lower. The valuation multiples are going to be a bit lower and this firm doesn't have as much scale. So they're not going to be operating as efficiently. I would still expect though that with, with no growth, this $2 million business is probably worth $4 million when they go to monetize it. 
in if we took the, the second scenario, which was just the 10% organic growth for five years, its business still will sell for almost seven and a half million dollars. So it can still see almost a, a 2x in terms of the valuation increase from static growth. And then if we do the scenario three again, which is the organic growth plus the acquisition, um, it's almost a $16 million price tag. So I think this shows, irregardless of the scale of the business, sure, the multiples might be different and obviously the, the valuation changes. But as far as the value creation or the, the multiples that the business can increase in value, this shows that if you're independent, the growth and because you're able to pick up operating leverage and drive efficiencies to the business, plus the real power of an acquisition and an acquisition where you as the buyer actually own the business versus your firm has um, immeasurable value on the business. Amazing, actually. But, you know, I think all of this speaks to, but it can't all be upside. I mean, there have to be some downsides to both going independent and or selling a firm at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not all butterflies and rainbows, as you might say. There's definitely a risk that an advisor is taking on. So if they're not confident in their portability, either because they're locked into some proprietary products, they don't have great control over their clients, or maybe they grew their business by way of um, picking up clients from other retiring advisor programs, then this math falls apart. So this, this does assume that an advisor is pretty confident in what they can transition, because otherwise the math falls apart. The other thing is not every advisor wants to be independent. Just because many want additional freedom and flexibility and control, and they like that they control their own destiny and can chart the course of their business, it's not for everyone. Many advisors are very, very happy within their wirehouse and either will choose to retire from there because it is the best place for them, or that another firm similar to it, or even just another employee model firm, is going to be good enough and will give them that legacy that they want and will make them feel comfortable that they're leaving their clients in the best possible place. So certainly not for everyone. Um, and there is risk, not to mention the fact that transitions are a ton of work. And many advisors would say the work just isn't worth it. But I think this shows that for those who, who want it and who desire the benefits of independence, I think above and beyond even the economics, it could be a pretty powerful decision. So look, at the end of the day, there are plenty of extraordinary businesses that thrive in the brokerage world. But for those who want to make the leap to business ownership, there's real potential in building an enterprise in the independent space where value can grow exponentially and an advisor can create a business based upon his own vision and timeline for retirement. And I think the beauty of the expanded industry landscape today is that whatever version of utopia an advisor would define, he's much more likely to find it today than he may have years ago. Lewis, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a really productive and enlightening episode, and I'm grateful for your time and your wisdom and your insights. Of course, happy to do it. This is a fun topic, and it's something that I think every advisor, regardless of whether they decide to stay where they are or explore elsewhere, should understand. Because at the end of the day, advisors have built real businesses, and they should be looked upon like a real business, which has value to an external buyer. Yeah. So ultimately, there are plenty of extraordinary businesses that thrive in the brokerage world. But for those who want to make the leap to business ownership, there's real potential in building an enterprise in the independent space where value can grow exponentially and an advisor can create a business based upon his own vision and timeline for retirement. And just a reminder, 
you can find a link to the full text of the Forbes article we reference here on this episode's webpage. So we thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002, by cell at 973-476-8578, or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.